Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. I think it's good for us to be reminded that there is persecution taking place around the world. Um, the church in various places around the world is facing in, not just casual persecution, but intense persecution. And sometimes when we think about that, we wonder, well, how does that affect Christianity? Well, in our passage this morning, we are going to get the first glimpse of persecution in the early church. We're going to get the first glimpse of opposition and persecution specifically towards Peter and John, but we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. And I think it is a good reminder for us to, one, understand that persecution is real, um, that there is a need for boldness in the face of persecution, but then I also think it is important for us to understand that persecution does not dictate what the church does. And I, I want to expand on that just a few moments before we actually get into our text. I think we know that when we boldly proclaim Christ, that there can be persecution. I mean, persecution against Christians is always present on college campuses. I mean, I think about you guys going to college, going to be on different college campuses, little disappointed. No one's going to University of Tennessee, but we'll talk about that later. But as you live your faith on college campuses, there will be persecution as a result of that. And it's the same way for us in the workplace and in our neighborhoods. When we boldly live our faith and when we boldly proclaim Christ, there is the chance of persecution. At the same time, I think we need to understand that right now, Christianity as a whole is growing around the world. I mean, if you, if you look worldwide, Christianity is on the rise. There is only one demographic where Christianity is declining. Only one demographic around the world where Christianity is declining, and that is among white people in the western part of the world, us. That is the only demographic where Christianity is declining. You may think, well, if that's declining, then certainly Christianity as a whole is declining in the United States. But in fact, there are other, all the other demographics in the U.S., Christianity is growing. In fact, it's growing primarily with Hispanics and African Americans. There is growth in evangelical Christianity. I think it is good for us to pause here for a second and say that you and I as believers in Christ, we should desire that all, all people from all nations and all races and all cultures come to faith in Jesus Christ. That should be a desire that we have. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that you and I should desire our church to be multiracial, multiethnic. We should want people from different cultures and different backgrounds coming here. In fact, I read a quote this past week that stated, if you are not welcoming to people of other races, other cultures, and other backgrounds attending, what you want is not a church, but a social club. And that is the truth. We should desire people from different races and cultures to come and be a part. And if you think, well, I wouldn't like a church like that, then you're not going to like heaven. Right? That's, that's going to be the reality of heaven. Everybody coming together and worshiping. What is interesting, though, is as we talk about how Christianity is doing around the world, the places where Christianity is growing the fastest 
is in places where there is the most persecution of Christians. In fact, the place around the world right now where Christianity is growing at the fastest rate is Iran. All kinds of persecution, but Christianity is flourishing. A lot of research now says that there are more evangelical Christians in China than in the United States, a place where the church has to meet underground. So it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, you would think that if you go to a place where Christianity is persecuted, where Christians are oppressed, where the church is illegal, where you can be put to death many times for simply being a believer who lives out his or her faith, you would think that in that environment, Christianity would be not growing, but the exact opposite, that it would be shrinking. But, in fact, the exact opposite is happening. Maybe you've heard of the early church father, Tertullian. Any of you ever heard that name? A few of you have. Here's what he said. Maybe you've heard this quote. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You ever heard that quote? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What does that mean? Well, what he was saying is that even back in the third and fourth century, whenever the empires would try to squelch Christianity and oppress Christianity and persecute Christians, the church would always explode. It would thrive. It would spread. It would grow. I actually heard one author this week who said, if you want to kill Christianity, if you want to kill the church, give it freedom, power, money, and influence. Because throughout history, whenever true Christianity has had, or whenever the church has had that freedom, the power, the money, the, the influence, it has struggled. But throughout history, every time the, the church is persecuted, it thrives. Whenever the church is oppressed, it explodes. Whenever the church is under hostile attack, it advances. Well, when we come to Acts chapter 4 this morning, we start to see that persecution. And one of the things we're going to see as we go throughout this book is that as the church is persecuted, its witness grows. And as the Christians in the book of Acts are persecuted and oppressed, their influence expands. And as the church is attacked, it explodes and it grows more than what we could possibly even imagine. Now, chapter 4 is tied to chapter 3. I know you're shocked by that. But what we talked about last week has to be in clear view if we're going to understand what's happening this week. If you will remember, last week we said that the Peter and John walked into the temple. And as they walked into the temple, at the gate was a lame man, a guy who had been lame from birth, meaning he had never walked, and he is there begging. And as Peter and John go by, he looks at them and begs for money, begs for even sometimes food. And Peter and John stop, and they don't have anything to give him, monetarily speaking, but they heal him. They tell him to get up and walk, and he stands up and walks. And all the people around had seen this man every single day begging at the temple gates. He was a permanent fixture there. And so when they see him up, not just walking, but running and jumping and praising God, all these people start coming around to see how this happened, what happened, how is he now able to walk. And when Peter and John see the crowds of people coming, they realize that this is an opportunity to proclaim truth. This is an opportunity to preach the gospel. As they are preaching the gospel, if you're paying attention as Jason read the, the scripture reading this morning, as, as he, they preach the gospel and all these people come around, the, the chief 
priests and the scribes and the Sadducees and the temple rulers are unhappy. They come, they take Peter and John, they arrest them. They're going to put them on trial or at least question them. They'd already shut down for the day, so they end up throwing them in prison for the night. So understand, this is not just some kind of casual uh, arrest. I mean, this is a big deal. And it's in that context that we find our message this morning. Now, if you have your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin is an outline. We're going to go through all of this pretty quickly. But I want you to understand the title of the message this morning is Bold Proclamation. And the reason why we're calling this Bold Proclamation is because all the way through Acts chapter 4, you see God's word being preached. You see proclamation. You see boldness. You see talking. In fact, I'm going to read some of these verses. I'm going to go through them so quick. You probably won't have time to see them on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, just look at these verses as I mention them. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. They were speaking to the people. Verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Verse 18. They called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach. Verse 20. They respond, we are unable to stop speaking. Verse 29. Speak your message. Verse 31. They began to speak God's message with boldness. All the way through the fourth chapter of Acts, you see bold proclamation. And it should be a reminder to us that the mission that God has given your life and the mission that God has given our church cannot be accomplished apart from bold proclamation of truth. Now, I realized this morning that the question many people have is, or what they're wondering is, why don't I have this boldness? Because, I mean, God gives us opportunities. We have opportunities to share our faith. We have opportunities to talk about truth. We have opportunities to invite people. We have opportunities to stop in and offer to pray for people. So when those opportunities come, why do we not take advantage of them? Well, fear. Now, isn't this something we've all experienced as believers? All right, just me. No, thank you. We've all experienced this. Why? Why do we lack boldness? Well, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about why we lack boldness and how we can have more boldness. I think this passage gives us some answers. But we need to back up a step and understand a few truths as we go through this. If you're taking notes, here's number one. The gospel provokes a response. The gospel provokes a response. In verse 1 through verse 4, they are standing, they are preaching. The chief priest, the scribes, the Sadducees come. They are unhappy. They are provoked by the message that they hear. So the question is, why does the gospel always provoke a response? Well, here's your first sub-point. Understand that we preach an offensive gospel. The gospel message that we preach, the gospel message that we proclaim is offensive. You say, well, I thought the gospel was about going to heaven. Going to heaven's not offensive. Well, that's true. That's part of the gospel. You say, well, I thought the gospel message was about good news and that the gospel was good news for those who need it. And that is also true. But we have to understand that the reason the gospel is good news is because first and foremost, there is the reality of bad news. You say, why is the gospel offensive? Why does the gospel provoke responses? Well, here's the reality. The gospel is a message that begins by telling people that they are broken. The gospel is a message that starts by telling people that they are sinners in need of a savior. The gospel message is a message that tells people that the best they can do is nothing but filthy rags. The gospel message begins with the truth that we are all standing And deserving the divine just wrath of God. And there is nothing in and of yourself they can do about it. So if you don't think this provokes a response, try going up to someone at Walmart. 
and say, guess what? You're a sinner in need of a Savior. The best you can do is filthy rags. You're broken. You can't fix yourself. And you are, as of right now, unless you accept Christ, you are going to spend eternity in hell. You think that's going to provoke a response? I mean, you try going just to the church and telling people, hey, the best you have to offer is filthy rags. That's not popular. See, before you ever get to the good news, there has to be an acknowledgement of the bad news. See, every single person in this room this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, is a sinner in need of a Savior. And every person from the youngest to the oldest is someone who cannot save themselves. And every person from the youngest to the oldest and everyone in between, apart from Christ, deserves the wrath of God. That is the reality. See, before you ever get to communicating the good news, you have to acknowledge the bad news. And it is that bad news, which is part of the gospel message, that provokes the response. It is offensive. Now, I want to offer a clarifying point here. Here's B on your outline. It is the message that should be offensive, not our attitudes. Some people, when they hear that the gospel is offensive, think that that is justification for them to be a jerk. They're wrong. I mean, have you ever met someone who is a Christian, but in how they communicate their faith and how they communicate the gospel and how they communicate Christ? It's like, goodness. I mean, what you're saying doesn't line up with how you're saying it. I mean, y'all ever seen anybody like that? I mean, there's a, a church, not in this area, but in another part of the country that is known for going. They're a Baptist church, and they are known for going and picketing the funerals of, of military people and, um, I mean, all kinds of situations. And they are just ugly in what they say. Listen, the gospel is, the fact that the gospel is offensive is not justification for us to allow our attitudes to be offensive. I mean, if you read three, verse 3 and 4, how Peter and John respond in the verses that following, the gospel message is offensive. In fact, if you look at verse 2 and 3, you will see that the chief priests and the Sadducees come, and what has upset them is not the apostles per se, and not how they are saying, but it is very clear in verse 2 and verse 3 that what is offensive to them is the message they are preaching, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the message that could, should cause offense. I've often said, and I think it is so true, it should be the truth of the gospel that causes division, not our attitudes about it. And if you are sharing your faith and you are sharing truth, but yet it is your attitude that is causing the offense, then your attitude is actually standing in way of the reality of the gospel. It is the message that should be offensive, not our attitudes. So here's... Another clarifying thing that we need to understand. So here's a question I have. If the gospel message is offensive, and as we communicate and preach this gospel, people may respond negatively, and they sometimes will, why do we do it? I mean, you'd think that if I'm trying to get more people to share their faith, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it's hard and people may respond negatively. Why do we keep doing it? Well, here's C. Third sub point is that we persist because some people will believe. I mean, we continue to preach Christ in the face of opposition and in the face of persecution because we believe that some people will indeed respond. Look at verse four. 
This is an amazing verse. But many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Some people estimate that there were ten to 12,000 people who believed in this. This one time, ten to 12,000 people. Did some people respond negatively? Absolutely. Were Peter and John put in prison? Yes, they were. Why would they be willing to be bold and boldly proclaim truth, knowing that that was a possibility? Because they knew some people would believe. See, as a church, as you and I, as we collectively pursue the mission that God has given us, Understand that there will be people who respond negatively. The gospel is offensive. The gospel confronts people's sin. And when people have their sin confronted, they may respond in a way that we view as negative. They may not accept everything that we have to say. And they may reject our ministry and our desire to demonstrate the love of Christ to them. But we do not stop. We do not look at that and say, well, this may respond negative, so I'm just going to stay at home. No, we continue pursuing the mission. Why? Because we believe that people will respond. We believe in our hearts that as we communicate the gospel message, there will be people who respond in faith, who fall on their face before God and say, God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And we do what we do so we can see people believe. I mean, I think about... You guys going to college. There is no place harder to live for Christ than a college campus. I believe that very firmly. They need your prayer. In fact, will you all commit to pray for them? I got one and a half. Pray for them. Because as you guys commit to live out your faith on your college campus... There may be opposition, and there may be ridicule, and there may be persecution. But the reason you should keep doing that is the reason why all of us should live out our faith wherever we are. Because we believe that people will respond. We believe the gospel is powerful, so we live it. We proclaim it. We share it. We love people. We persist because some people will believe. So the first thing we see this morning is that the gospel always provokes a response. Let me give you number two. The gospel is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. So Peter and John are preaching. They're arrested. They're now standing before the, the judges and they're standing before the high priest and the court, so, so to speak. And they're asked, why are you doing this? This person who was healed, how was he healed? Peter responds, look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Skip down to verse 10, a familiar verse. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. You know what Peter and John are saying? Christ is the only way. See, part of the gospel message, yes, is the bad news, and yes, it is the good news of salvation, but we have to also include that that good news can only be made a reality in someone's life by way of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through the person of Christ, except through him. Christ is the only way. Listen, your good works will not earn salvation. 
Some people have the idea that they're going to get to heaven and there's going to be this big scale in heaven. They're going to put all their good works on one side and all of their bad works on the other side. And whichever side kind of wins out is going to determine their eternal destiny. But what we fail to understand is everything we have to put on a scale goes on the side of bad works. We have no good works to offer. I mean, the Bible is clear, Romans 3, that the best we have to offer is nothing but... Remember what it says? I said it earlier. Filthy rags. So when we get to heaven, if that was how, it's, how it worked, it's not. But it, it, when we get to heaven and we were to put everything on the scale, we would have nothing to put on except on the bad side. Your works cannot save you. Trusting in the Pope or the Catholic Church cannot save you. Trusting in Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna, none of those can save you. It is only through Jesus Christ that you can have salvation. There is no other name. None. He is the only way. See, if you and I attempt to love people and we attempt to proclaim the gospel, but we ignore the fact and leave out the fact that salvation is only through Christ, then we are not communicating the true gospel. You may call it the gospel, but if it doesn't have Jesus as the only way to salvation, it is not, not the true gospel. The gospel is exclusive. To quote a book title, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if we want to reverse it, Jesus plus something that we may try to add in equals nothing. Jesus is the way of salvation. If you're trusting in Jesus plus something else, you are not trusting in Christ alone. If you're trusting in Jesus plus your baptism, you're not trusting in Christ alone. If you're trusting Jesus plus your good works, you are not trusting in Christ alone. Christ is the only way of salvation. Now, here's where I want us to spend our last about ten minutes. How can we have boldness? Let me give you number three. Understand kind of at the outset of this that the gospel leads to boldness. But I think this is the question a lot of people have. How can I have boldness? Or maybe the question is, why do I not have boldness? I mean, maybe this past week you had a perfect opportunity to invite someone. You had a perfect opportunity to share what God's doing in your life. You had the perfect opportunity to offer to pray for someone. And the moment came and you're right there and you're thinking it and you're ready. And then at the last moment, there's silence. Nothing. You ever... Ever happened to you? Why is boldness lacking? Or maybe the question that, not the question I want to answer is how can we have boldness? I mean, how can you have boldness in your workplace? And how can we have boldness with the, the people that you see on a regular basis? How can you have boldness on a college campus? How can you have boldness in your neighborhood with your neighbors as you're talking? I think there's three things in our text that lead to boldness. And the chances are, if you are lacking boldness in your life as a Christian, that it is because one of these three things is missing. There's one of these three things that maybe you're ignoring. One of these three things that perhaps you're overlooking. And if you want more boldness, it's going to be found, I believe, in one of these three things. All right? Here's number one. Time with Jesus leads to boldness. Verse 13 is amazing. Look at verse 13 with me. So they're standing before the court. And when the court observed the boldness of Peter and John 
and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. What is it that gave them boldness? Time with Jesus. So here's the good news. Sometimes I think people are standing back thinking, you know what, if I was able to go to seminary, then I would have boldness. Or if I was able to go to take this class or do this, then I would have boldness. No. The only requirement that God needs from you in order for your life to make an eternal difference is for you to make the decision to spend time with Jesus. When they stood before and they had this boldness, the the leaders didn't look at them and look at all of their qualifications and all their accomplishments. The one thing that was evident is that they spent time with Jesus. Maybe the reason why your Christian life lacks boldness is directly tied to the fact that you do not spend time with Christ. I mean, the good news this morning is, is that God has the ability to use every single one of your lives to make not just a small impact, but an eternal impact. But the thing that you have to commit to do is spend time with Jesus. And the good news is every single one of you can make that decision. Every single one of you can make the decision to spend time with Christ. See, the... The eternal impact is not tied to any degree. The eternal impact is not tied to any amount of knowledge. The eternal impact they had is not tied to anything else other than the fact that they spent time with Christ. I mean, I, I value seminary and theological education, and I have the degrees, but let me tell you something very clearly. Education is no substitute for time with Jesus. And you can do more with zero education and time with Jesus than you can all the degrees in the world. Time with Jesus gives you boldness. Time with Jesus encourages you and it strengthens you and it gives you the courage you need to stand up. Why? Because when you stand with Christ... When you learn from Christ, when you commune with Christ, when you spend time with Christ, you stand before people. You know what people are going to see? Not how much you do or do not know. What they're going to see is that you have been with him. And that is what makes the eternal difference. Some of you this morning, the decision that you need to make is to spend time with Jesus. You guys are getting ready to go to college in a few months and you're going to have tons of things to do. Don't neglect your time with Jesus. Because that is what will give you boldness. That is what will make a difference in your life. Spend time with Jesus. And once you get out of college, you're still not going to have any time. And once you retire, you're still not going to have any time. So the reality is, time is not just going to appear for you to spend with Christ. It has to be something you say, I am going to do this. Let me give you number two. Not only does time with Jesus give you boldness, but seeing lives changed leads to boldness. Verse 14, again, is interesting because it's not just Peter and John who are standing before the court. So the night before they were thrown in prison in the morning time, they're brought back in before the court, the religious leaders. But notice verse 14. It's since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them. 
So the man that they healed got up the next morning on his own and came and stood with them in the court. And when he was there, you see the last of the verse, they had these religious leaders, the court, they had nothing to say in response. Skip down to verse 16. So they're meeting together now. Here's what they say. What should we do with these men for an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them? We cannot deny it. Verse 21, after threatening them further, they released them because they found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So this man who had been healed is now standing before the court. The court looks and says, listen, we cannot punish Peter and John because obviously a miracle has been done. We cannot deny it. When you see lives changed. It cannot be denied. When you see the power of the gospel transform a life and transform a heart and transform a mind and transform a marriage and transform a home, you cannot deny the power of the gospel. Listen, that gives you boldness. I I can imagine being Peter and John and standing there before the court and seeing the guy standing beside me that the day earlier I said, stand up and walk. And he stood up and walked. Guess what? I'm going to be pretty bold. You know what happens whenever you share the gospel with someone and Christ transforms their hearts and transforms their life and reorients everything about them and they are a new creation, the old has passed away, when you're able to stand next to them and you're able to say, God changed his life, you will have boldness. I mean, some of you here this morning, if you think back to when you came to faith in Christ, your life changed. I mean, you're honestly, if you're talking with us, Giving a testimony this morning, honestly, that your life before faith in Christ and your life after faith in Christ is radically different. I've heard testimonies from some of you. I know this is to be the case. And you're saying, okay, that happened to me, but why don't I have boldness? Well, you've forgotten it. You have forgotten about how Christ changed you. You forgot who you used to be and who you are now. And when you forget the change that Christ has done in your heart and done in your life, the boldness disappears. Some of you were saved at a very early age. Some of you are saved five, six, seven years old. And in your mind, what you're thinking is, well, my life didn't change a whole lot because I hadn't had a chance to do anything really bad. And so my life didn't change much. Well, what you have to remember is think about what Christ saved you from. Think about what your life could have become. Think about how you could have ruined your life if it wasn't for Christ. And if you're having a hard time with that, simply be reminded of the fact that apart from Christ, you're deserving of God's wrath and eternity in hell. And because of Christ now, you have an eternity with God in heaven for all eternity. That's the difference, right? It's a big difference. That's because of Christ. So remember the change that Christ has brought about in your life. Let me give you... The third thing, desiring to obey God leads to boldness. Desiring to obey God leads to boldness. Verse 17 and 18. However, they're threatening them now. So this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name. What name? The name of Jesus. So they called for them, verse 18, and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God you decide. Notice verse 20. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's a word picture at play in verse 20. It's the idea that there is so much there that it's bubbling over and the container cannot hold it. Peter and John said, we have seen so much that we cannot help but proclaim Christ. So if you want us to stop and you think we need to stop, that's up to you, but we can't help it. We just got to tell people about Jesus. But here's the important truth in this. Rather than desiring to please men, they desire to obey God. And in your life, whenever there is the desire to please men, and the desire to please men is more powerful to you than the desire to please God, you will have no boldness. The way that you can have boldness in your life is when you are spending time with Christ, when you are focusing and remembering the lives that you have seen Christ change, and when your goal, when your if I use the word priority, is to please God rather than pleasing men. Listen, you know what gets people in more trouble than anything else? The desire to please men. You know what sucks joy out of a life? You know what sucks power out of a life? You want to know what sucks boldness out of a life? The desire to please people. And for many of us here this morning, our desire to be pleasing to people is greater than our desire to be obedient to God. You want to know why you do not have boldness? Because you fear people more than you fear God. You want to know why you don't have boldness? Because you are not spending time with Jesus. You want to know why you don't have boldness? Because the fact that Christ changed your life is ancient history in your mind. You forgot about it. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, how can we have boldness? How can I have boldness to pursue the mission? Because understand something, this mission that God has given us cannot be accomplished apart from bold proclamation of truth. How can we have more boldness? I have a feeling that many of us here this morning, we need to commit to one of these three things. Some of you need to commit to spending more time with Jesus. Because you're not. Some of you need to commit to thinking and remembering and focusing on the fact that God has changed your life and the lives of people around you. Because you've been ignoring that. And some of you this morning need to determine that it is going to be more important to you to please God and obey God than please other people. You can have boldness. And we're going to see this boldness all the way through the book of Acts. But understand that we will not accomplish the mission God has given us apart from this boldness. So however Christ is speaking to you this morning, make the change necessary to have this boldness that we need. Will you stand with me this morning? Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.